Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Well, um, we might finish Philippians 4 tonight. We'll see. Um, But we're going to get through a lot of verses, and we're going to start in verse 10. Um, I'll go ahead. We'll just read all the way through... um, 14. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me my afflictions. You know what will go all the way through through 20, actually. You yourself also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even Thessalonica, you sent, in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance, and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And Paul practices what he preaches. Back in verse 4 of this same chapter, Paul exhorted the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And that is uh, what he's doing now. A teaching, biblically speaking, is always a combination of instruction and example. Instruction gives meaning to our example. And our example, when not hypocritical, gives credibility to our instruction. Uh, If we were merely led by example, we would leave those under our care to make their own conclusions on why we do what we do. People would have to guess uh, the reason behind our actions. If we merely led by instruction, we undo the power of our teaching uh, with the reality of our practice, right? So if our life is at odds with the things we teach, we we end up undoing them. Which is why in verse 9, Paul told them the things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul, like Christ, declares and demonstrates the truth of God. All those things are brought together, both his teaching and his example. Uh, Christians are to hear and to do. And it's easy to do that which we hear when we're led by godly examples. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says... For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And this this ties in with the sermon this morning in a lot of ways. Sons naturally imitate fathers. That is the grid which Paul sees Christian discipleship through. It isn't just classroom time. That's how a lot of us want to think of the role of pastor 
which is why I refuse to refer to pastors as preachers. Now, 100, 200, 300 years ago, I might not care, but now, nowadays I do care, because that is how people look at pastors, merely as someone that teaches and instructs through their words. And that's central to the work of the pastorate, but that's not the whole work of the pastorate. And uh, so it's life on life, right? It's life together. Yes, it's centered around the public teaching of the word, but Jesus, when he called the disciples to themselves, they walked with them. That's the whole, the picture also we get in Deuteronomy 6 of how fathers are to teach their kids. It's along the way, in the home, uh, at the market, everywhere. And uh, that is the, the way Paul sees it. He wants them to learn from his example. Then he says, uh, Now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So Paul is rejoicing for a reason, because he received financial support from the Philippians. Um, they've been supporting him, but there was a lapse for some reason. Not really sure why. He says that they lacked opportunity. That could mean that due to their own circumstances, they lacked the ability to meet the need. Um, or it could mean that they were unable to connect with Paul. It's the ancient world. He's hard to get a hold of because he's in a jail. Who knows uh, how that was going on? It just could mean that they weren't able to. Um, he seems to want to confirm to them that, they, that he received the gift from Epaphroditus. Perhaps it was just difficult uh, to make it happen. Uh, regardless, Paul wasn't just a one-time recipient of a gift. All right, There's people that are willing to make a one-time gift to someone. Often so they don't have to talk to them again. Um, uh, that, uh, I like to sometimes give a dollar on my way in to the guy ringing the bell just so I can get out. But anyway, uh, and it's good. It's good to have a one-time gift. Praise God for it. I mean, that could be uh, moved by, obviously, a move, moving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, however, repeated and continued support demonstrates a deep, heartfelt concern on the behalf of the giver. And that's the cause of rejoicing here. Generosity is an amazing gift. And when someone gives over and over again, and work, it wasn't easy to give then. Nowadays, we just put a little give button, and you can give through PayPal, through a credit card. You can give like a thousand different ways. And, uh, and these guys had to work to give to support. And uh, it's, it's this gift of generosity, the heart that seeks to bless people, is truly a work of God. I mean, I've just seen it since I've been a Christian and blown away by it. It's certainly not my strongest area. But I meet men and I just think, how? How is this possible? Well, it's because God works in them. And that is why he's rejoicing in the Lord. He sees their generosity. He sees it as God working in and through them. And that's what leads him to praise. Also, I should add that this is a natural desire. It's natural for a church to support a godly leader when they have benefited from the, his ministry, right? The Philippians possessed this desire, but the Corinthians didn't. And in Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians 9, Paul says, it's kind of a longer passage, I won't read all of it, but for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope. And the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sow spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? That's <laughs> so scandalous. Isn't it scandalous? I know some of you don't like me saying scandalous, but think of it. 
Look, I preach to you. Is it wrong for me to expect money from you? Let me just stop for a moment and sit on that. That's what Paul's saying. It's scandalous to say it. No one wants to preach on this text. No one does. Right? For all sorts of reasons. Usually because the pastor himself has struggled with his own generosity. But then he's got to say that to people. But that's what Paul says. If others share right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. If we could, we could ask for money. But we don't want it to get in the way of the gospel. And that's why we're not doing this. He is shaming them. That is exactly what's going on here. Without a doubt. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. It's just This is how God supports people that are set aside for special labor in it, to his people. They benefit from them. And uh, so Paul is happy because there's a lot of Christians that think, I'm not going to give you any money. Right? That's, not, that's not natural. It's, it's, when, when parents get old, and, they, and they're not able to take care of themselves, it is natural for a child to want to take care of them. But it, it, it's especially unnatural when they don't. Why, why do they don't want to take care of their mom or dad? They, they brought them into this world and cared for them. If they have good parents, they should. And so the Corinthians, they, the Corinthians are just, that's depressing to Paul, that they're... They're not being holy in that way. But all the more when he sees the Philippians, they're going out of their way to give and take care of them and support his work to other churches, right? So that's why he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing that, that they care and they're invested in him and, and he just sees the Lord working in them and maturing them. This is the character that should be um, possessed by Christians. In verse 11, he says, not that I speak from want, Paul gives this clarifier because he wants the Philippians to know that he wasn't broken down by adversity. He was grateful for the gift that they, they gave him and satisfied by it, but he, wasn't, he was of such a mind that he could patiently wait for it to arrive. Right? He, he trusted the Lord. He knew the Lord would provide for him. So he could, he could wait for it. And I just think um, how some of us get... Or, this is like confessional time. I don't want it to be that. But I know a man um, that at times is like waiting for that, that IRS refund. <laughs> like checks his account. I actually, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this. The IRS will only let you check so many times a day um, of whether or not you're, you're, there's been a change in status on your refund. Um, because I guess people are overwhelming their website. And that happened to me one year and it immediately convicted me. That I just wasn't waiting on the Lord and patient. That it would come in as good. What me checking it does what? I'm just obsessing and thinking about. It. He's letting them know. Look, I'm not. I'm not in this state of mind where this is all I think about. This is what I, not what I'm possessed um, by. Calvin says, for it was of importance that his constancy and moderation should be known by the Philippians, to whom he was the pattern of life. Paul wants them to see. That his call to be anxious for nothing and be ruled by the peace of God is a reality in his own life. That's, he's, he's referring back to that. Right. Praise the Lord for this. 
It's not all want, right? Then he says in um, 11, the second half of 11, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So Paul has the peace of God because he's ruled by the God of peace. And that means no matter the circumstances he finds himself in, he is content. Right? He's stressing that. Any and every. He does that a lot in the tail end of Philippians. He uses a lot of the, those sort of words. Always, every, any. Trying to stress how there's, he's taking away wiggle room. Because that's what we want to do. Right? Have you ever um, comforted someone and as you comfort them, they more or less tell you that you don't get it? Or have, you, uh, have someone try to comfort you and you're like, well, my situation's different. Right? Paul's saying it doesn't matter your circumstance. There's no circumstance in which you, uh, which you can uh, not... There's no situation that keeps you from being content. You can be content in all of them. He knows everything comes from the hand of God and God takes care of his children. Therefore, he's content. And contentment... This is one definition I found. This is from the Webster's uh, 1828. It's my favorite dictionary to look at. Just much, even definitions are more bland nowadays. But they say uh, contentment means satisfied, quiet, easy in mind, not complaining, opposing, or demanding more. That's what it means to be content, easy in mind, not complaining or wanting more. Every single circumstance, you can possess that. It's another way to explain the inner peace that comes to the Christian who trusts God. But that trust must be learned. Twice in these two verses, Paul repeats that this is something he has learned. And contentment is a a subject that that we all must study. and, And God is sure to throw routine remedial courses our way. And I find that to be a great encouragement. That contentment can be learned. That's encouraging to me. A discontented life is misery. It's miserable. Those that are discontented are never satisfied. Nothing lives up to their expectations. Nothing. No sandwich. No movie. No relationship. I had a friend. I saw Slumdog Millionaire when it came out. I think it might have won the Academy Award thing. I really liked that movie. It was a really moving movie. And, um, and I was like, yeah, it's one of the greatest movies I've seen in a long time. That's a, basically what I said. And he saw it. And when he, he's like, yeah, it wasn't that good. I think you just got my expectations high. Like, it's a movie. A movie's never that good. Any movie. There's none. They're all, like, just movies. So I don't know what you expected it to do. Cause an epiphany in your life or whatever. But as movies go, I enjoyed it. And there's some people that can't. They're never, ever happy with anything. Nothing's good enough. It can always be better. They always want just a little more. Proverbs 30 says, The leech has two daughters. Give and give. There are three things that will not be satisfied. Four that will not say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. Do you want to be an unquenchable fire? A leech? Never able to say enough. That is no life. And we've all experienced that. 
where we're not happy, where we're not satisfied, and we go from thing to thing to thing, and none of them satisfy us. Right? We think if we move, we'll be happy. So we move. Right? Maybe we need the beach or whatever. And then we're not happy there. And we think if we get married or we get a better job or we have this money or a better or bigger house or, or we have the respect of our, our coworkers, that these things will make us happy. But they don't. But it does, this doesn't have to be your life. That you can be content. That is a wonderful promise that there is an escape from that sort of mindset. Paul learned it, and so can you. He calls it a secret. He doesn't really use that language very often. So what is the secret? Well, it's verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, modern Christians would have you believe that this verse is about God granting you the special ability to win sports events. That's, right, there's, that, that's on a poster, there's like an eagle, or there's the guy sitting on the edge of the rock or hanging on the rock by one hand, and it's got that verse there. Um, that's what they think this is about. And you always hear this when you watch, like, boxing matches or, or um, football or soccer or whatever. Like, I think that God, thank God that he gave me the strength, you know, to win this game and whatever. And part of that's kind of true, right? God did give them the ability. God does sustain all things. But there's this sort of idea behind this that this is like the special power that God gives you to, um, to win at sports and business. But that's not what it really means. It simply means that Christ, by his word and spirit, will strengthen you to face all the various circumstances of life in a way that's pleasing to God. That's what it means. That you can face all these things in a way that will please God. It doesn't mean you'll have victory in the way the world defines it. It doesn't mean you win the big game. It means when you, according to the world standards, are losing at life, you'll be able to face it with faith, not moved, not seduced by the passing pleasures of this life. That's what it means. And that's why it's a wonderful promise. Paul's saying this. He's joyful. He's happy. He's a gentle spirit. He's not weighed down with anxiety. And he's sitting in a jail. And that's when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the context that we must understand that verse in. And that's, that's a context that's helpful to me. Because I'm not going to win the Super Bowl. Right? But I, but I am going to struggle through life. And I'm going to be in difficult circumstances. And so are you. And, and God can meet you there and give you contentment. It means that when... There's an influx of money that you won't see it as an opportunity to indulge in base desires, but rather use it for kingdom work. No matter what the situation, Christ will strengthen you to do what God has called you to do in a way pleasing to him. Right? That's what the Christian wants, to please God. And we find ourselves in circumstances that are very difficult to know what, what would please God. This comes by having the mind of Christ, which we gain by studying his word and having his word taught to us with the aid of the Holy Spirit. We, get, we begin to think about situations very differently as a Christian. It's only through, only the Christian can see the death of a mother-in-law or a mother as something good. If she knows the Lord, the blessing of being made whole with other Christians and her Savior. Only a Christian can look at things that way. 
Only a Christian can look at the humility that comes through cancer or weakness as a good thing. Christianity changes the whole way we come at the world. We're foreigners in this world. For example, consider this wonderful passage from Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Great book. Everyone should read it. Um, he was one of the Westminster divines, actually. And, uh, and it just goes to show everyone that thinks the divines to be a bunch of dusty, impractical theologians just haven't read them. That's if they say that, you know that they haven't read them. Some are a little more dusty than others, but, but not Burroughs. He says this. The difference between what a godly man has and a wicked man is this. A godly man is as a child in an inn. The innkeeper has his child in the house and provides his diet and lodging and what's needful for him. But a stranger comes, and he has dinner and supper provided and lodging. But the stranger must pay for everything. It may be that the child's meal is simple, and the stranger has a great feast, but there must come a reckoning for it. You understand? What he's saying is the unbeliever may have all these things, but they're going to have to pay for it. And what we have, we have by God's grace. And therefore, it's free. So we may have a little, and it may be simple, and it may not be ornate, and as amazing looking as what uh, the non-believer has. But he will have to answer to God for that. It changes the whole way we look at things, right? It's better is a little with holiness than a lot with wickedness. Now, let me just go back for a, a, a moment he says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. So both poverty and wealth come with their difficulties. A lot of times we think we only have to learn how to deal with poverty, but he puts both of them there. Uh, now, neither state is categorically immoral. To be rich or poor, neither one in itself is immoral. Uh, Proverbs actually breaks it down. If you study Proverbs, uh, it breaks it down into four categories. And here's what I challenge you. If you add Proverbs into your reading habit, um, you can get through it 12 times in a year. You just read a chapter a day. And I did that for a couple years. It was very helpful to me. Um, I love Proverbs because sometimes I'm dumb. And I just need to know in a sentence or two what God would have me do. And it's very helpful. But Proverbs breaks it down to... First, the righteous poor. And these, these people are poor not for lack of effort. It's not because they're lazy, um, but it's simply due to some circumstance. And they meet that circumstance with faith, and therefore it's, it's righteous. And then there's the unrighteous poor. And Proverbs talks about these people quite a bit that are slothful, that are lazy. And that's why they're poor. They're poor because they're not content. How can you be poor and not content? Well, when you're not content, you overextend yourself and chase things that are beyond your means. And that plunges you into destitution, right? Whether it's some sort of debt or whatever. So that's, that's unrighteous poor. I, I, don't think, I don't think the liberals in our country believe that such a category exists. But it does in Scripture. And then there's the, un, uh, then there's the righteous rich. And they're wealthy because of diligence and wisdom, right? 
with prudence they respond to the circumstances God sends their way. I mean, the way that some evangelicals, they overreact to health and wealth preachers, the way we talk about rich people is disgusting. Abraham's rich. A lot of these godly patriarchs are rich. They have lots of wealth. But they're holy, right? They're, and, and they know that what they have came from the hand of the Lord. And God blesses them generally through, um, through their prudence and their diligence. Now, there's also the unrighteous rich. And they're wealthy due to being workaholics or dishonest or schemers. There's a lot in Proverbs about them, too. So I think we don't want to th- we don't want to think poor equals righteous, and we don't want to think rich equals unrighteous. There's four possibilities, right? Um, now, increase in wealth is especially dangerous, though. Scripture does say that there is a special danger connected to wealth and to money. And one reason, simple, is because money amplifies. Money amplifies. You want to find out what a person is, you just give them more money. That's why five years, within five years, like 70 to 80% of all lottery winners go bankrupt. Because money's not their problem. They're their problem. You give them more money, and they'll just make more problems. That's all that's ever going to happen. You give a, a wicked man more money, he's going to do more wickedness. Right? It just draws out what's already there. But I have known men who have been very diligent and eventually have come into a lot of wealth and seen them do incredible things with that wealth. Right? They're just excited to give it away. And uh, in, in a sense, I'm glad that the Lord, I think the Lord gives wealth to some people to destroy them and other, uh, other people to define them. Right? I've seen folks come into a lot of money and just build churches and bless missionaries. But we have to be careful because increase in wealth is always dangerous. Here's what 1 Timothy 6 says. Uh, if we have food and uh, covering, with these we shall be content. So there's the biblical standard. Food and covering. That's enough. But those who want to get rich. Note the word want to get rich. Fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. It's different when someone wants to make a great product or wants to work really hard and the Lord blesses that effort and it leads to financial gain. That's different than wanting just to get rich. Christians, we want to off our work, we want our work to result in uh, products and services to the glory of God for the good of our neighbor. That's what motivates us. And we'd like to get paid enough so we can eat. But sometimes that leads to doing some really amazing things, and the Lord blesses that, that uh, faithfulness. But these are men that just want rich. They, they just want riches. They want money. And so they seek after it, and it leads them into all sorts of temptations, crazy investments, working uh, with no regard for the Sabbath. They do foolish things, and it plunges them into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Wealth is such a danger that it could destroy you. You could shipwreck your faith. I think about this because a lot of my friends are into entrepreneurship, kind of. They're in the online culture of entrepreneurship, which isn't the same thing as necessarily really being an entrepreneur. Um, But they're just driven by a desire to have affluence and to have money. And they start, I've seen it with these, what do you call them, multi-level marketing companies that just get in over their head. And uh, some of these things you have to like invest $10,000. And they're doing it just to make a little income to bring into their family to help them get by with the stay-at-home mom. But they're investing like five, six, seven, ten thousand dollars $10,000. Like, well, put that in a savings account or something. But, but it ends up consuming their life. And they can wander away from their faith, but also pierce them with many griefs. And if you've ever um, read any interviews with people that come into a large sum of money, it's very common for them to say that they wish they never had it. And one, one story I read a couple years ago was the guy that created Minecraft. And he basically sold it to Microsoft for half a billion dollars. And um, he was in the interview talking about just how unhappy he was. How he has no friends. And he hangs out with these super rich people like on their islands. He's like James Bond villain sort of level of, of wealth, seriously. And it was really stirring how honest he is. All you got, just Google Microsoft uh, Minecraft sale, and you'll find the article. I forget. What, I think it's Forbes. Um, but it was really fascinating, and it's true. We all think that money is the solution to our problems. But our father has the cattle on a thousand hills, right? He has everything we need. God is our solution. And, and when, we, when we follow him in faith, we'll apply his word to our life day by day. And that will lead to greater diligence. That will lead to greater productivity over time. And, um, and he'll take care of us. But either way, we're to have a heavenly mindset. I remember Benny Hinn said, streets of gold? I want the gold now. I need it now. <laughs> That's what he said. And we can mock him. But all of us have a little Benny Hen inside of us, right? We want some heaven now. We just don't want, like, we're not looking for bags of gold. Like a little pouch of gold, right? That would, that would do. But know your heart. Know yourself. So wealth is dangerous, but it also can be a blessing. And that's what we see in verses 14 through 18. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. He's glad that, that they have money to give him, right? He's glad that they're able to share with him in his affliction. And here's the principle. God blesses one sector of the church so another sector can be supplied for. It happens all the time. I just think of those who have taken care of me. For example, um, we decided we were going to make a big life change. And... Uh, my former employee that had me tra- traveling all the time in difficult situations, I decided I was just going to quit it, and I passed on a really nice job in Cincinnati, and we're going to do whatever it t- uh, took to be part of a good church, and we moved to Bloomington. But we had been living at the very edge of our means, so passing on that job uh, meant being in a lot of trouble, and, but we knew we needed to be part of a godly church, so we moved to Bloomington, and a man named Nick Schroeder allowed us to live in his basement for three months. 
And that was the three months I needed to find a job in Bloomington, Indiana, which wasn't easy, um, because there's lots of jobs, but they don't pay much because they have a bunch of college students, unless you know how to do medical devices, which I don't. Um, so I was able to get a job, and then I was able to go through the pastor's college, and uh, God trained me, and I was humbled and became more useful, and then I was able to get a job here and teach today, all because of Nick Schroeder, who God, Nick Schroeder is the engineer that makes better ways to cure cancer, has a little bit of money, right, because that's amazing when he does, uh, but he opened his home to us and loved us, right? God blessed him, but now I can bless you, right, and, um, and I, that's how it works, he says, you know yourself, Philippians, that in the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. So you're the only one taking care of me. For even Thessalonica, you sent me a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. What Paul, what Paul cares about most is, is what the gift represents in their heart. Their, their attitude, their trust of God, their care for the kingdom. That's why everyone should be giving in this church. I didn't mean to say that. That's why. Not because this is some sort of financial scam, but because you love God, you love the kingdom, you want to see it pushed forward. And that's what he's looking, he wants, I want to see profit increases to your account. But I want you to know, he says, that I have received everything in full and have abundance. What I really want is the maturity and the godliness that this is um, building into you. But the gift is nice. Thank you so much. It is helping me. He, he doesn't, he wants them to know what he's in it for. But he also wants them to know he's thankful for, for both. And, uh, Paul's ways with words is amazing. But he has everything. I have abundance. I'm amply supplied. He's just content. It doesn't mean that as Paul travels through um, the ancient world that he's got a bunch of trailers following him. It just means he's got what he needs to get his work done. He's a content man. And what he says is, your offering is a fragrant aroma, a sexual sacrifice well-pleasing to God. I like seeing uh, the Dion family up here singing this morning. It reminded me of Sound of Music. <laughs> but, uh, and then I like seeing Zeke and Hudson up here. I like to hear young people worship God. It's beautiful and it's encouraging because it's the church, right? It's the church after I'm gone and with the Lord, that will be the church still moving. So it's a fragrant aroma. It's, and that's what Paul likes to see in the Philippians. He sees their offering as a fragrant aroma to God. He, it's worship, and he's pleased with it. And that's how we have to look at giving. It's worship. It's honoring God. 1 Timothy 6 also says this. It <clears throat> gives instructions for the rich, just building a little bit on wealth being a blessing. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. And money makes you proud. That's why God always takes it from me. Right? I've got some really good jobs, and then he takes it from me. He does it because he doesn't want me to go to hell. Right? He's my father, and he loves me. But money can make you conceited and proud. 
So that's why it says he warns them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Things come and go. But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So he doesn't tell them to get rid of all their money. But he does say in verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So if the Lord should bless you, um, this is... This right here is what you need to memorize and put to work. Be generous and ready to share and take care of people. And the church is often backed by a handful of people that, that God, in his wisdom, sees fit to give money. A lot of times it's a reflection, the reason the Lord doesn't give us money, because he loves us. Can you imagine giving a couple million dollars to like your 18-year-old son? What sort of son he would have to be to have that inheritance? So when you look at Bill Gates and uh, Steve Jobs, the way they have set up the money to come to their children is really strict because they don't want they know what would happen. They know what led to their success. It wasn't having tons of money. It was it was character. It was a certain drive or whatever. And so they know that they, they could actually um, if they would give them that, it would be bad for their kids. It wouldn't help them. And that's God's a, a much better father than Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Right, so he withholds things from us sometimes for our good. And that's why we have to learn to be content where he has us. And that's why Proverbs says, it's, it's uh, Proverbs, I forget the, the exact proverb, um, but where he says that, uh, don't let me have too little, don't let me have too much. And learning just to be content where God has, has us. That's what he's calling them to. And this is really just Paul laying out an example of someone that can rejoice, have a gentle spirit, have the peace of God in their mind. Paul is saying, follow my example. That's what he's doing right here. And he's trying to stir them up and encourage them. And it's a wonderful encouragement. This is how he finished it. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. That verse is there for some reason. It's not just a throwaway verse. And a lot of times we... We treat them that way. But one thing I just would want to point out is the communion we have with Christians all over the world. It's, it's amazing. Um, I remember um, Emily and I, when we'd go on vacations, we'd get bored. Like A vacation for me is about four days, and then I start losing my mind. But we went on one vacation. It was like 10 days. It was a big mistake. So we started hanging out at Barnes & Nobles because people still did that back then, trying to meet Christians to fellowship with. And we would, and then we just hang out and fellowship with them, because that's how we are. Um, and so, but, oh, this is my brother and my sister. And it, it's the beautiful uh, nature of the church. It's universal. It's global. And that's what's being stressed here. Greet everyone. They all, they, they care about you. And then there's people in Caesar's household. The church just takes over everywhere, already, that early. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. A fitting way to fit it or finish it. As Paul opens, telling them how thankful he is for them and how much joy he gets from them and, and from that exhorts them, that's how he finishes it. Right? Love you guys. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you um, because I see the Lord working in you. That's how he ends it. That's that is what Philippians is about. Unity, generosity, joy, all that comes from having a heavenly mind. Um, which is the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. You provide all our needs. 
chiefly our salvation. We can't buy it. There's nothing in us that makes us worth saving. It's only it's just your pleasure, your election, according to your purposes. And we thank you for it, God. We thank you for the grace that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that we would be a church full of unity, the unity in the gospel. We pray that we would be a people that are full of joy, that we wouldn't be complainers, we wouldn't be constantly discontented, but we would be thankful for the way that you provide for us, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this wonderful book. Pray that we would hide all your word in our heart. In your son's name, amen.